Welcome back to the Megatherium Club podcast, guys and women and anybody else. My name is Sean, and I'm here with Zach and Spencer. Happy late Thanksgiving if you're in the USA. Did you guys have a good holiday season? Oh, yeah. Stuffed myself yeah. full of turkey. <laughs> that lucky good. turkey. Um, <laughs> I had so much stuffing. It was so good. It was made with homemade sourdough bread. It was just so good. Mm. I, I made mm-hmm. stuffing for the first time. I can't tell you if, if I don't know. It was okay. It was okay. But uh, <laughs> I think if I made sourdough bread and then made the stuffing, it would be even better. Hmm. There we go. Yeah, that well, sounds pretty good. Yeah, next year, get a little sourdough starter and just go to town. I yeah. We were also just eating slices of sourdough bread all day, every day. <laughs> How much sourdough did you make? Well, it was, I didn't make it. My partner. Uh, did they her like four her, loaves? I, I, feel, I used an entire loaf of bread for my stuffing. Oh, those carbs. No, uh, I don't know how many was made in the end. Okay, but more than but one, it sounds. More than one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. okay. Well, um, yeah. you guys want to get into it? I think so, yeah. Let's right, get into cool. it. I think we're ready to roll. What's uh, what's today's um, episode about, Sean? So today's episode is uh, is all about size uh, in the animal size kingdom. Matters. And yeah, specifically, or sp- especially for this episode, talking about big things. And I guess not necessarily just animals. I, I should correct myself on that. But uh, I I wanted to start it off and take a deeper look into what most people may consider common knowledge. And if you ask anyone what the largest creature they ever thought was, you might get a few different answers based on how much that person may have paid attention in science classes growing up or their accessibility to nature documentaries and books. But I would bet money that the most common answer is a blue whale. Would you guys argue that or? Uh, Yeah, that's what I was always told. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't argue against it. That was what I learned in every single class growing up, ever. I was always told that blue whales are the the biggest animal to ever exist now or in the past. Same, but I, I wanted to break this down a little bit. It, is this true? When we say biggest or largest, we're being a bit vague, really. But what, what does that mean? Are we, are we talking about surface area? Are we talking about the longest? Do we mean heaviest? Are we looking at the mass? Also, by saying creature, we're kind of excluding a number of plants and fungi that could greatly outdo the blue whale in these categories if we're saying it's just the largest living thing ever. Well, we got to stick to the animal kingdom or it's already getting beat. But let's let's look at the longest creature ever. Does the blue whale fit this? Flat out answer is no. Uh, there's, there's multiple species of sauropods, the, the long necks, if you will, that were longer than the blue whale. The largest blue whale was 98 feet. There were dinosaurs such as Diplodocus and Supersaurus that exceeded that length by up to 30 more feet. Is it the longest creature alive today? Also, no. There are jellyfish that can exceed the 100-foot length and bootlace worms and siphonophores, which... That was a new word for me. Hadn't heard of that before. What's a siphonophore? What's a, uh, you kind of think of it like a, a colonial organism. So it's made up of smaller units that all eventually create one large organism. And I guess you could kind of argue, well, you know, each little piece is really the organism, but the whole thing behaves as one. And if you didn't know better, it, it would be one organism. Oh, that's interesting. That that plays into something I'm going to talk about a little later. And that's <laughs> that's what so when I was in Tanzania studying abroad, we went swimming in the ocean 
off the coast and I got stung by a colony organism uh, acting as a, a jellyfish. So it wasn't a jellyfish like you see in SpongeBob. It was this long strand of individual organisms that all were acting as one and I got tangled up in that. Was it a man of war? No. It wasn't. Oh. I don't. I have no clue what it was. Oh, okay. Uh, I just saw it. My arm went into it, and as soon as I like moved my arm within it, it just dispersed. It, like basically dispersed out, huh. and you could still see little chunks. And then I asked some of the folks around uh, what they might have thought it was, and they're like, "Oh, it sounds like it was just this co- colony type of organism that goes around stinging stuff if it gets in the way." So, <laughs> did you have them pee on your arm then? No, uh, my friend offered, but they had a <laughs> bottle of ammonia in, behind the bar for cleaning and that specific purpose. Good, good. <laughs> no, yeah, Sean, I'll let you pee on me next time. Uh, next good, time okay. Time. So, yeah, even if we're not together, you'll just send me uh, your a bottle. sample. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you guys want to videotape that, you could put it on the internet. Probably yeah, yeah, we'll... make more money than this. <laughs> <laughs> You, you mean the money that we've spent on this? Yes, yes. The, this, the this... negative amount of money we've <laughs> yeah. made. I'll put it on the, the Megatherium Club podcast OnlyFans. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes. Uh, when are we going to release our calendar for next year? <laughs> oh, uh, soon, because next year is almost here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, go, right. go to the merch store. <laughs> the one that we totally have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Perfect. Uh, well, back back to the whales. Uh, what what about mass? Blue whales have been known to reach a mass of 199 tons, but that is spelled T O N N E S. That's the metric unit. It is equivalent to a thousand kilograms. I want to I want to keep it uh, the same throughout this presentation, if you will. Uh, so when I speak of tons, I will be talking in the metric unit. And that one metric ton is about 2,200 pounds instead of the American ton, which is 2,000 pounds. So 199 metric tons is over 438,000 pounds. That is really heavy. But does that compare to anything else? Before I compare other animals, I should first say blue whales actually consist of four species, maybe five. These are distinguished by where they live, kind of like how different subspecies of orca are identified. The northern subspecies covers the Atlantic and Pacific. The northern Indian live year-round in the Indian Ocean. That's pretty fitting. The, the pygmy blue whale inhabits waters from Madagascar to Indonesia and further south to Australia New Zealand. Okay, and how the, big is a pygmy blue whale? What 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 constitutes pygmy when it comes to the biggest <laughs> thing that's ever been around well i was gonna you, you kind of jumped ahead of me a little bit but i also don't know the exact sizes for it but it's got to be the smallest of the blue whales for sure the antarctic species are the ones found all around antarctica and they are the largest specimens so far and they also do travel elsewhere throughout the year but uh, they all make different sounds and they can communicate mostly only within their subspecies and they have their own migration routes the potential fifth subspecies is a population off the coast of chile Uh, there's still much debate whether they are genetically different enough to be called a separate subspecies and i guess another side note again we find ourselves talking about human classification of animals that could potentially interbreed with each other 
since their habitats do overlap a bit. And not only that, but blue whales in general have been documented breeding with fin whales to make fertile offspring hybrids. So scientific, classific scientific classification is cool, but it can also be silly at the end of the day when you're separating these organisms and they can still just interbreed and stuff. So Yeah, they don't really care about the boxes we try to put them in. Yeah. And fin whales are quite a bit smaller than blue whales. So I wonder if, you know, maybe pygmy whales, pygmy blue whales are a bit closer to fin, fin whales than the rest of the blue whales. I'm not too sure on that. Don't quote me. But um, <laughs> that's what I was going to get on that. Maybe they're closer to the size of fin whales. According to Wikipedia, the pygmy blue whale is only 24 meters long or around 79 Ooh. feet. Okay, compared to the larger ones, they get up to about 30 meters. Yeah, okay. but there's no weight. Still yeah. really big. Could yeah. still kill you. <laughs> but, yeah, it um, still might squish you. Okay, good to know. Back to the stats, though. Yes, when looking at massive animals alive today, the blue whale wins, for sure. Second place today would be given to the North Atlantic right whale, clocking in at almost 234,000 pounds, which is quite a bit different, <laughs> or quite a bit less than what a blue whale, blue whale can reach. Almost 200,000 pounds less. Like, that's the difference we're looking at. But we're, I guess, again, we are talking about the largest blue whales and then a, what we're calling another species. But there's definitely a range within blue whales. The, the next part is where it gets interesting. Gr growing up, all I remember reading and hearing is how the blue whale is the largest animal to ever live. But paleontologists are making more and more discoveries that puts this statement to the... I already mentioned that some sauropods reached lengths that definitely exceeded blue whales, but what about mass? I don't know if either of you two had heard of this paper that came out earlier this year, but in 2023, paper about new mass estimate estimations of super sauropods rivaling that of the great whales came out, and it was written by Paul and Laramendi. So I don't want to get into the weeds of it because that's going to take way too long get us sidetracked but i encourage you to look into this yourself listeners if you're interested or if i'm doing a horrible job at explaining this to you but here's the short of the long paleontologists have size estimations of most of the large sauropods how they get these numbers is a bit beyond the research that i have done and i encourage you to look into it more one approach they take if they only have partial fossils say only a few bones few bones they will compare these bones to other specimens uh, some relatives the ratio of the femur or tibia to overall size is a currently useful approach. Partial fossils have been discovered of a new sauropod that makes even Argentinosaurus look small. And I may butcher this name, but as you guys already know, I suck at scientific names. <laughs> but <laughs> it is Bruhathkaeosaurus. Gee, what? Bru yeah, Bruhathkaeosaurus matlii, but I'm going to call it Bruhathkaeosaurus for the rest of this talk. It is arguably the largest sauropod ever discovered, but it's it's a partial specimen. And I say as of right now, December 2023, because this could change next month, and that's mm -hmm. why paleontology is fun and exciting. Yeah, they did not f discover a full skeleton, only a few bones, the femur and tibia specifically, and compared those ratios to relatives. When scaling the animal up from the tibia, results came out ranging from, <laughs> it's quite the, quite the range, but the mass of these organisms could have been 120 to 240 tons. Now remember, the blue whales were 199 tons. So they're, they're saying this thing could have been 
40 more tons than a blue whale. But the scientists were disregarding the 240 tons a bit by saying those proportions came from a comparison of Patagotitan, which had really unique ratios and likely not the same as Bruhathkaeosaurus. The Patagotitan scaling is excluded. The average estimate based on tibia length is 165 tons. When basing the estimations of the femur, though, the average was only 125 tons. This left researchers with a possibility range of 110, 170 tons, and then they scaled that down to just try to be a little bit more conservative. So the lower end of Bruhathkaeosaurus is 110, 130 tons, which is absolutely massive and dwarfs almost all other sauropods and is definitely the largest and largest animal on land discovered so far. And I said animal, but not quite reaching the mass of the biggest blue whales. They, they're probably, you know, rival an average blue whale for sure. But maybe, let's just say for now, because we don't know for sure that it, it didn't quite get over the blue whale mass. But was there another prehistoric creature that might have dwarfed the blue whale? Welcome to the chat, Perucetus Colossus, Colossal, or P. Colossal for short, aka the Colossal Whale from Peru. This paper also came out earlier this year, and this was another incomplete specimen, but just based on its vertebra and ribs, this was a massive creature. The ribs alone were five feet long, but what was truly impressive with the vertebrae was that each vertebra weighed over 200 pounds each. God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one vertebra weighs more than me. Th that was my next sentence. I was like, just one of these weighs more than each of us here. Like, separately, not combined, but... It is, it is estimated to be about 20 meters in length, so a, a bit shorter than a blue whale and maybe just a bit shorter than, as Zach said, the, uh, the pygmy blue whales. But looking at its bones, researchers believe it could, could have been heavier because the bones are much more dense than a blue whale's. I have seen estimations for its mass ranging anywhere from 85 to 340 tons. Jeez. Again, the blue whale was 199 tons. So the high-end estimates of this ancient whale is 140 tons more, more, basically a whole sauropod more <laughs> than the largest blue whale. God. This thing, <laughs> and this thing was a giant sausage rolling in the deep, basically. And I, I guess <laughs> it actually wasn't in the deep waters. It's believed to have been in uh, more shallow areas feeding on the bottom. But the head was not discovered yet, so we can't actually be sure what or how it ate yet. And despite, despite that, the current artwork of this thing looks ridiculous. And I don't know if you guys have pulled up a picture yet or not. Throw one into the chat. I want to see this. Let me see if I can get that. Basically, it looks like a giant manatee that has ate nothing but McDonald's for the, its entirety <laughs> of its life with <laughs> like a weird rat, dog, wolf head on it that just does not fit weird how do they how do they depict the head if they've never even found it so they they are using the head of all other bacillosaurs to uh, because it, it's you know it's a whale ancient whale relative like bacillosaurus oh what the <laughs> this thing is like a yeah it's like a, a sausage or like an animal balloon and then the head is just like <laughs> 
<laughs> Teeny tiny. <laughs> it's it's like termite queens. Their body is like ballooned up and they can't move, but they still have these tiny little mandibles that, you know, they need help feeding themselves. Oh, and he's got little vestigial legs on him too. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to say, are we just going to comb over that aspect? It's tiny little like human sized legs. <laughs> they're, they're probably human sized too. <laughs> just on this 340 metric ton body. <laughs> wow. I, I would love to go back and see this sausage just feeding on the bottom or whatever. I can't imagine it was a, a pursuit predator. If it was, good luck to everything else. But yeah, massive is very cool. And also, I guess I should say, two things about this creature would just rewrite textbooks. If it was really that large, then the blue whale is no longer the largest animal that has ever lived. That That's one. That's that's the obvious one. We can't tell how much blubber or, or muscle was on it, but you know, with these size estimations and those bones being so much denser than a blue whale, it's a good chance it, it was bigger. The second is that this whale predates any current estimate as to when whales were beginning to just reach behemoth sizes by almost 30 million years and most giant whales today are baleen so they are filter feeders and whales at this time were mostly toothed had had baleen whales evolved yet uh not that i know of can't confirm or deny but my knowledge is that they're not present yet or they they were definitely smaller if they were they, like, the blue whale did not exist during this time. Yeah, yeah, but it's a toothed whale, so, like... Well, that, we don't know oh. yet. We don't, we don't have the head. That They're giving it the head of Basilosaurus okay. because... Oh, yeah, because they don't know why not. what it looks like. Yeah. That's just the closest thing they have to, to estimate what it might have looked like. Yes. This thing's wild. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm kind of blown away. I, I hope... Okay, so maybe... You, the three of us, we go out, we rent a boat, and we go look for these fossil skulls. I don't think we need a boat. Where'd they find it? Uh, Peru. Oh, oh, yeah. In Peru? Yeah. So first we need a... I mean, if we could get a boat to get to Peru, sure. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll yeah. take a plane. I'll meet you there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah I'll, yeah, I'll do that. I think yeah, I'm on the wrong sure. side of the U.S. to take a boat. That would be an extra long trip. Um, <laughs> the Panama Canal. You can do that. Yeah, that's that's a thing. Forget that exists. Cool things coming out in paleontology in 2023. And they're all talking about size. We're in the golden age of paleontology. Golden age of giant sausage. Wow. <laughs> who, who wants to go next? I'm more than happy to share mine. All right, Spencer, what you got? Tell me what you got. What you really, really got. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to go off that energy but i lost it already here we go so the first thing i want to talk about really just quickly is flight so flight first evolved 350 million million years ago in the insects yay Yay, insects did it first bugs Uh, bugs. Uh, by the way i do want to do a whole episode on insects did it first uh Mm. so anyway we'll talk a little bit more about that maybe in that one But since then, many other groups of animals have also evolved flight. Flight is super great. It can get you away from predators. It can get you closer to prey that much faster. You can move around faster. It's just wonderful. So it evolved plenty of times. In dinosaurs, the avian dinosaurs specifically, 
what we have you know modern birds the mammals i.e bats and yeah so you're forgetting yeah. one. Oh, am i oh man <laughs> yes i am so so well hold now in all of the groups of animals that evolved flight you can still find modern examples of them today you can find bats all over the place you can find birds all over the place and you can find insects all over the place all of them still flying doing what they need to do whereas another group the reptiles uh they have seen in the modern era they seem to be left out of the that flying capacity there are a couple specific examples that we can point to that are gliding reptiles the genus draco which yes like draco malfoy draco meaning dragon is a genus of gliding lizards Ooh. that you can find in i th- oh my gosh in indonesia i think anyway there is also the genus chrysopelia which is the genus of gliding snakes and so yeah while they can glide pretty efficiently and pretty well jumping from you know limb to limb within the trees they're not true flyers they don't have powered flight so they can't go up any more than they really started off at unless if they get a nice gust of wind but still it's not true powered flight however at one time the reptiles did rule the skies and they ruled it for millions and millions of years and that group is known as the pterosaurs and and within the pterosaurs evolved the largest flying animal that has ever existed which is super sad that it's still that it's just gone today so discovered in the 1970s by douglas a lawson in texas was the most famous pterosaur the quetzalcoatlus specifically the species northropi north northropi northropi i don't know northropi one of those two northropi Northropy? Okay. <laughs> I think it's pie. <laughs> Either way, which they dated back to living in the late Cretaceous, evolved when the went extinct around 66 million years ago. And so Lawson decided to name this creature after the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, which is the feathered serpent god representing many things and among them wind, which is why I'm assuming he picked that one. So back in the day, naming... You kind of had to name there. We talked about this in a previous episode, but one of the categories that you could pull names from were mythological creatures. So Lawson decided to use such a cool one, in my opinion. And the fact that it represents the god of wind, I'm sure he's like, man, this giant flying creature just can't imagine like the power behind these wings. So that's I it didn't in none of the readings that I found and including the papers that he originally wrote on these he didn't explain why he named it after this one or at least I couldn't find that but that was my kind of guesstimate it was the god of wind yeah so anyway Lawson immediately knew he had the biggest flyer with an estimated wingspan initially of 15.5 meters or 50 feet whoa but just a yeah, and just a year later, Lawson himself started to question whether this giant reptile was actually even capable of flight. And initially, as more and more fossils were being discovered in Texas, in the early 1980s, the wingspan was estimated to be 28 or 25.8 meters or 84.6 feet. What? Uh, Did they find a baby the first time? No, so they actually... so. They did find smaller specimens, and they initially thought they were younger versions. 
but later on they would become a different species of Quetzalcoatlus, uh, which would then end up being named after Lawson as Quetzalcoatlus lawsoni. Anyway, but no, <laughs> I don't know where this study got their stuff from. I couldn't actually find the article. It was cited in another paper that was like, this is like the largest wingspan estimated, but most modern studies, at least according, at least as of 2021, put it around 10 to 12 meters or 32 to about 40 feet across, which is still just ginormous. Mm -hmm. And most estimates put this thing standing at around five and a half meters or about 18 feet tall. Any, any like image that you look it up online, it'll kind of picture it right next to a giraffe, like a giraffe. You know, basically this thing is as tall as a giraffe with a wingspan of 40 feet and it, and I won't, don't, don't get too far ahead of myself, but it can fly. So I have to also highlight when we're, when we're talking about just how big this thing is in terms of weight, this paper that I read, it highlighted, or I have to highlight a quote. So it stated that the weight estimates range from, and I quote, an anorexic 30 kilograms or 66 pounds to an obese 544 kilograms around 1200 pounds. But most come in around 200 to 250 uh, kilograms or around 440 to 550 pounds. Still, you know, still massive, but not quite as small as a dog, like in terms of mass or weight and not quite as heavy as a polar bear at 1200 pounds. So somewhere right, somewhere right in the around the middle, but most are leaning towards yeah. This thing was pretty chunky, not as chunky as a modern day polar bear or, or Kodiak bear. And so yeah, now the question is, could this thing fly? And I gave you the answer: yes, it can fly. But people for a long time debated exactly how it could actually fly. So for sometimes folks said that, no, they couldn't fly. They simply walked around and they scavenged carrion or mollusks or arthropods, essentially just kind of walking around, flightless, doing whatever they needed Walking to around on those 80-foot wings. <laughs> on those 80-foot wings, yeah. And they're like, yeah, they just got too big and decided that they could just scavenge what they could find walking around. They got um, too obese. They got too obese, essentially, yeah. <laughs> However, no, more and more studies are like, nope, these things definitely could fly. So again, how, how could they actually fly? And I remember that when I was first learned about this creature, it was still the hypothesis that they needed like cliffs. They would like go up to a cliff edge and they would jump off and they would just kind of open up their wings and glide. And they were gliding species. And so like, like modern day albatross, they would open up their wings and essentially let uh, the massive size of their wings create enough lift to move them up and down through the through the atmosphere. And people are like, okay, so they have this gliding lifestyle. That means they probably were similar to other pterosaurs in that they were like skimmers. To get their food, they would simply skim across the top of the water, dip their beak down, and scoop up fish and eat them as they were kind of flying around. But no, <laughs> more studies were like their, their beak shape, their toothless beak shape. No, they likely did not skim water. And other studies were like, they were just too big to actually be able to, to glide like that. They're just too big and too heavy. Okay, so then what did they do? Well, also where these are found is not next to 
like the ocean. They're found way farther inland, still in areas that probably had, you know, enough water, but a lot of open fields, some shorelines in terms of maybe some lakes, some rivers, but not the ocean. So where most pterosaurs lived at the time. So like, okay, there's also no cliffs around here, so they wouldn't have been able to jump off of anything. So that means that they just had to just take off if they flew. So yeah, that's kind of what they did. So modern studies were looking more at the breastplate of these animals and stating, okay, their breastplates are huge. They're well-developed, meaning that they had some powerful flight muscles on them, meaning that they probably could just take off from the ground, but they probably weren't flying for very long. They would fly up, fly around a little bit, and then land somewhere else. And their ecology in terms of feeding is closely related to modern day storks or herons. They would walk around and they would just kind of pick up prey that was kind of underneath them. They probably ate smaller prey, if anything that they could catch in their beaks. So yeah, they were just massive. <laughs> Standing as tall as a giraffe, they could fly around and just eat whatever they could basically come across. And that's, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it for them. I mean, the crazy thing is, is these pterosaurs are among the most talked about pterosaurs of all time. But there's not many fossils found from them. Most fossils are just, just parts of bones. Uh, and so all of the articles were basically like, we don't actually know a whole lot about them because we just don't have enough information yet. But you know, this is the best guess as, as to what they actually did. So, yeah. Have you watched either of the new documentaries, either on Netflix or Apple or anything like no, that? No, I need to. I I found out that they were talked about in those doc documentaries. That, that's what I was going to say. I think in both of them, um, or three of them, I can't remember how many are there, there are, but a bunch came out this year with prehistoric creatures, and I, mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was... Uh, Quetzalcoatlus or Hatsagopteryx, but it was really cool seeing them kind of walking around stork-like, but obviously not because storks have legs that they can really walk on. Not, <laughs> right, not bipedal wings. versus quad. <laughs> yeah, but there are these massive tall creatures that were just looking for like baby sauropods amongst the brush, and that's what they were eating was mm -hmm. <laughs> sauropods. Baby dinosaurs. Babies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty cool to see that. All I can think about is the the sheer force of the wind as they take off. That's all I can think about right now. Yeah, and I mean that's that's why I was like, man, that's got to be why they named it after the Aztec god. And so I don't know. Uh, of course, Lawson at first was like, could these things actually fly? So <laughs> either way, wind, yeah, powerful things. Sean, I'm glad you suggested uh, the other genus that you mentioned. What was it, Sean? Hatsagopteryx. Oh, thank you very much. I specifically specifically left that out until now. I was hoping that you were going to say, Spencer, <laughs> but what about this other giant oh, flying yes. creature? Yeah, uh, well, 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 Spencer, what what about this other one? Is, is it, oh, is thanks, it, John. <laughs> is it bigger I feel than a, Hatsagopteryx? I feel a but actually coming on. <laughs> no, no I, I actually don't know which is bigger. I just know that there is a discussion about which is bigger. And they, they yes. know for sure. And I, I don't want to take away too much from you, but I know mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. heads are very different on them. And yep. the Hatsagopteryx has a much heavier head. 
And when when you said you're going to do this, I was just like, oh, cool. I am bored. I'm going to look into Quetzalcoatlus because I also <laughs> just enjoy learning about them. And I didn't go into too much detail on the Quetz. I ended up just going deep into Hatsagopteryx. And then, like the biggest question was, in a fight, which of these two would win? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, <laughs> yeah, when I, when I Googled which was bigger, just like trying to figure it out just from like a Google search – that's what came up. It was like Quetzalcoatlus versus um, Hatsagopteryx. And I was like, oh my God, this is like like that old, I think it was that old Animal Planet show where they would like put two animals that would mm-hmm. never <laughs> yeah. actually fight animal against fight each night. other. <laughs> yeah, Animal Fight Night. Yeah. There is a, so, a children's book at the bookstore that I saw like a week ago that's all about just pitting animals against each other and who would win. And I children's book. Was, I should, yeah. I mean, it was like in the children's section. It wasn't in like the adult section by any means. And hmm, mm-hmm. like not, you know, not infant, not single digit age, but you know, a young kid would probably be like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Like, what would like, win, a crocodile or a, a Dilophosaurus? Wow, I want to know. Um, I, yeah. I feel like that's another episode. It is for sure I, another I'll go episode. Get that book okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll save mine. I won't. I won't mention the one that I remember. Oh, okay, um, I'll save it. So, uh, but anyway, I do want to talk about them uh, a little bit. And you didn't give too much away, so don't worry. Okay. Uh, so these these ones also lived during the late Cretaceous period, but in modern day Transylvania, which intrinsically makes them cool, in yeah. my opinion. <laughs> and so. It's highly likely that these creatures also share the same lifestyle as the Quetzalcoatlus, and that they, act, they you know they they were like herons or storks. They walked around. They picked up baby sauropods. That's what they're <laughs> always pictured picking up, which is incredibly funny to see a long necked dinosaur just in the beak of, of this giant reptile. Which, if you imagine, if it was an adult, that's even more funny. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> And so, yeah, they had the similar lifestyle, but these, this specific genus was concentrated on an island, the Hattig, uh, Hat, I'm not pronouncing that probably right at all, island. It was a big island that was essentially in Central Europe because there was an inland sea that kind of cut everything off. So Europe obviously did not look like it does today, but they were on this one island and everything that I found was like, these pterosaurs were the apex predator of the island. Nothing could get them. If you were lucky as as a sauropod, you managed to escape them and get a little bit bigger. But even then, like, watch out for these guys. Now, Sean kind of talked about the skull a little bit and that a lot of the pterosaurs that are related to both of these, they're known for these super long, like extremely long, and some of the longest skulls in the animal kingdom in terms of just length long slender and sharp the quetzalcoatlus definitely had a long slender beak however these guys had a short and stout head really kind of much wider the beak was a lot shorter and thicker and scientists were like okay well how the heck did they actually even hold these things up well and I think it was a couple of years ago in 2021, a study or 2017, a study came out and looked at the, they found a vertebrate and they're like, look how thick and robust this vertebrate was. But the vertebrate themselves were also shorter as and stout as well. So they weren't as tall as Quetzalcoatlus because their necks were just shorter because they had to have 
stronger and thicker bones in order to actually hold up their thicker and heavier skull. Now their skull wasn't so thick and heavy that they couldn't actually fly because there, there was another paper that looked at the skull and how there are specific porous zones within the within the different bones of the skull that actually made it lighter for like how big it is, but it was still a lot bigger. And so they were actually a little bit shorter than Quetzalcoatl. In terms of their wing uh, length, they basically, the study in 2003 was like, yeah, everything that we have found up until now is supporting that they had pretty much the same exact wingspan as Quetzalcoatl is. And so, okay, which one's bigger? Either one. They probably weighed about the same as well. Well, that's not true. Sorry. Pat's got that thick old head though. It's got a, It's got the thick head. So it probably weighed more, but it probably wasn't as big in terms of like surface area. Mm. And, but the study in 2003, it, it said, it goes along to say that, and I quote, it is difficult to demonstrate that Hatsigopteryx Hatsigopteryx was, okay, so it is difficult to demonstrate that these guys were larger, but both were simply giants. So it doesn't really say one way or another that, yes, they are indeed bigger, but it probably in the end actually goes to Quetzalcoatlus. And the other paper that I mentioned a little bit earlier talking about the anorexic 30 kilograms <laughs> also stated this paper was hilarious. Uh, they also uh, stated that things in Texas are bigger and that's probably <laughs> true for this species. Here. <laughs> Largest flying reptile came out of Texas, huh. which makes perfect sense. So, uh, yeah. So I got to hand it off to, yeah. What's well, up? Th- so these things pretty much got knocked out with uh, the, the asteroid, just like, like they definitely couldn't avoid that stuff. No. Yeah. Yep. There was no way that once, once the asteroid hit and wiped out the dinosaurs, their food, if they survived, uh, their food source was gone. Um, yeah. yeah. Because if they survived, so big. they was, yeah. <laughs> they were pretty much site zero. Like yeah, the, the, yeah, they pretty much were, but I can imagine the ones in Transylvania definitely lived for a little bit longer. Oh, but yeah, even yeah. then, like ten minutes, you lose, when you yeah, well, that's what I was gonna say. When you lose the sauropods, uh, you lose them. So, yep. Also, kudos yeah. to the publisher of that paper uh, for accepting everything's just bigger in Texas as an argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I like. I should have. I need to put more little sayings in my papers well papers like i'm writing papers oh my god <laughs> no in my thesis that i did wrote or did write a long time ago my I thesis that i did wrote <laughs> <laughs> hey i'm from texas i talk how i want not really I'm sorry not to anybody texas. any texans listening to this podcast we love you we love you too or i love you god dang it <laughs> all right zach uh, I'm excited to hear about your uh, specimen. Yeah. So, so uh, as we were talking about earlier, there's many different ways to quantify and measure what constitutes as the biggest, right? Is something the tallest? Is it the widest? Heaviest? Most expansive? Does it take up the most area or volume? Considering all these different ways to talk about quote-unquote biggest, I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about an organism living on our planet today that smashes every other known organism, including the ones that have been talked about already, 
in every one of these categories. Now, I say organism because I am branching off, pun intended, from the animal category of, of life. Pando, the quaking aspen, populus tremuloides, stretches over... Can, actually, can you guys remind me about uh, how long your your dinosaur... Your, not your dinosaurs, but your, or your animals were? 30 meters, almost 100 feet. Yeah. 18 feet. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, Pando stretches over, I guess this is an area, not a length, but he stretches over 106 acres. It's pretty close. In, in central Utah. So, like, if you look at Utah, you put a dot dead center, that's where Pando is. And it's, so this is, it kind of goes back to the the communal organism, I guess, that Spencer got stung by. Because it's it's an aspen, and as I'll talk about it a little later, Pando is comprised of 47 thousand stems or ramets as it's called with aspens and it has one interconnected root system so fittingly pando is latin for i spread because i mean it covers 106 acres it's spread out pretty good and altogether this organism weighs guess guess just give me a guess compared to what uh your guys's animals were just take a guess at how much pando weighs all together 200 and thousand 200 and a thousand 200,000 metric tons i'm gonna say uh i want to i want to use sean's animal here like 50 of sean's whales <laughs> spencer you're actually really close uh so two, oh, two, yes. 200,000 metric tons is a little excessive this one Damn. is only 6,000 metric tons or somewhere between 13 and 14 million pounds for our U.S. Sheesh. listeners. <laughs> yeah, so to put that in per- into perspective, this is more than 40 times larger than the biggest blue whales out there. So, like, take 40, 40 of those blue whales, stack them all together, and that is Pando. Dang. Yeah, so one question is, how did Pando reach such an immense size? So aspens are special trees in that they grow what we call clonally. Like there's one root system and that spreads out. And from that root system sprouts new new baby aspen clones. And each one of these clones is, as it sounds, they are genetically identif- identical to the original tree that sprouted. And so Pando has gotten its huge size from glowing clonally. And so when you're out in in that tree you're actually just in a forest like this this tree is not just a tree it's an entire forest and there are thousands of aspen trees in this forest and each one of them is actually just one small part of an individual organism uh you're gonna you're gonna trigger my dad when he listens to this growing up in colorado we had a number of aspen trees in our backyard and they were all the same tree, just like this one. Obviously not as big. <laughs> but they would always send up shoots. And uh, my dad hated when they got too big for the lawnmower. So he had to go <laughs> out by hand and snip them away. And eventually, when when one started to die, they all started to die. So we had to take – we had one tree die – and then the next couple of years, like every other aspen tree started dying off. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> because it's <laughs> my all dad the same had to thing. take down like 
10 trees in like two years because they all died together. Oh no. So, like just the root system collapsed yeah, and they all died. I, yeah. Yeah. That's, so. that's sad. And I'm also, I'm also going to be talking about that. Something similar in a little bit. I, I got a question. Yeah. Can you tell it's an Aspen by the way it is? <laughs> you can in fact tell it's an Aspen by the way it is. It's pretty yes. neat actually. <laughs> <laughs> best youtube video ever yeah. that's pretty neat yeah for anybody for anybody that has no idea what we're talking about google or youtube the nature walk uh it's a great <laughs> video and i think there's actually like three three episodes of it or something but yeah it's it's a great one also i want you guys to take a guess at how old pando might be 500 years i already know because i remember studying this in botany Okay, well, I want to hear what you have to say. Well, actually, first, Sean, go, and then I want to hear what Spencer says. I said okay. 500 years. Okay, okay, not bad. Spencer, what are so, you going to say? So I remember reading this specifically being from that area of the U.S., and my professor, she basically, like, created her own textbook for the class, and she still included this. And then when I read it, I was like, there's no way this is real. So I remember doing research on this back in the day. And I remember it, uh, there was a couple different estimations as to how old it was. But most people are like, it's 70,000 years old. And other people are like, mm, yeah, maybe that could work. <laughs> because the idea was, if they're that old, how did they survive the last ice ages? And they're like, well, the the you know the glacier and the ice sheets never got this far down south and so they could have just like survived through that and yeah but that's what i remember that's what i remember it being so i don't know is that still right do they figure out something more well let me just say it doesn't seem like anybody has an idea about how old it is literally every every page i clicked on with the question how old is pando gave me a different answer so I got mm -hmm. estimates ranging from 8,000 to 80,000 to 2.6 million years old. <laughs> what? Yeah. 2.6 million? Yeah. But I will say I will say that each of these kind of came to the consensus that the first, you know, Pando clone sprouted at the end of the last ice age which was really confusing to me and contradictory because like the claim that is that said 2.6 million years like within the same sentence said at the end of the last ice age which was only 10,000 years ago so <laughs> i don't know if anybody really knows but like if i had to guess i'm just going to go with like between 8 to 10,000 years because that's the, the end of the last ice age which sort of seems to be the consensus well, so they said the last clone sprouted then, but what, like, could there have been roots underground for, like, I don't know, a million years No, they're ago? saying that's the first. That was the first clone oh. that sprouted. Okay, like, okay. From, from seed, Pando sprouted at the end of the last Ice Age is kind of what what I gathered from <laughs> from all of my research. I found so many different answers to this question that... Gotcha. I really don't know. I'm going to I'm going to exclude the 2.6 million years ago. I don't think that is it. 
Because if that were it, we would have like a living stand of aspen, like with a petrified forest of aspen underneath it, pretty right, much. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, which would be sweet, but I don't. That's not the case. Yeah. So I'm leaning towards the nine to ten thousand year range, which was the end of the last ice age, because I can't really see it having germinated under a mile of ice. Which I mean, that's what it the was Midwest in Utah, was though, in. right? Yeah, it was in Utah. So like. Maybe the ice I – I don't know whether or not the ice uh, sheets reached that far or not. I'm not, I'm not a glaciologist. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of different estimates. But no matter which one you go with, this is an extremely old tree that has had the same genome this entire time. And Yeah, according to Wikipedia – uh, and whatever study study Wikipedia was citing, it's actually retained its genetic integrity really well, which I thought was really cool. So we could almost have put this, we could almost have put Pando in our living fossil episode, which <laughs> is kind of neat. As itself, as, yeah. as a, an individual, not just a yeah, species. Yeah, not just a species, but like the individual Pando could have <laughs> been in our living fossil episode. However, there's a study that was published by Paul Rogers and Darren McAvoy from Utah State University that has found that within the last 30 to 40 years, Pando has actually stopped growing and mm. therefore it's thought to be slowly dying. And this could be due to a number of different factors, including the chronic drought conditions that we are seeing in the western United States, herbivory from animals like mule deer, and fire suppression. And these combined factors have led to a severe lack of regeneration for Pando. So when these older clones die, which individual stems of aspen, they only live about 100 years. So on the scale of 10 to 80,000 years, that's a drop in the bucket and there's nothing to replace those once they die because there's they're not seeing these aspen seedlings because they're getting they're getting nibbled to death by mule deer basically yeah and i wonder what were you gonna I say i wonder oh, i was just gonna say i wonder if there's a way like to protect areas of it i mean i know that they do like a lot of exclusion areas in rocky mountain national park yeah. I'm wondering if they would ever implement something like that. Yeah, I was actually going to talk about that in a little bit. Ah, um, well, there we go. Yeah, I was going to – but before that, I was going to mention another vulnerability that I see with Pando is that it's 106 acres of not just like a single species but a single genotype of that species, which would make Pando exceptionally vulnerable to – things like insects and disease and there are things like bark beetles and root rot fungal diseases and bacterial infections that are slowly taking out some of the the individual mature uh stems or ramets of pando so (laughs) if there was like an outbreak of some like poplar borer i feel like pando would just go down because it's it's the same genetic tree for 106 acres the whole thing is weak to the same thing yeah like we see you know, hundreds of acres of cornfields just go down to one one in outbreaking insect because there's not enough genetic diversity. And when there's no genetic diversity, I feel like that just makes makes it extremely vulnerable. But we need all to of give this, it that BT, BT yeah, gene. we we need. <laughs> is there is there a BT for beetles? Like Coleoptera. I know there's like Diptera, there's Lepidoptera specific BTs. Yeah, but I don't oh know yeah, about... there's got to be for beetles. 
Probably. Um, because, uh, oh, like rootworm. That's a beetle. Is it? Yeah. Northern rootworm, western corn rootworm. That's a beetle. Oh. What does Pretty the beetle sure. look like? Pretty sure. I could be making that up. Um, gotcha. Western corn rootworm. It's Oh, yeah. It looks like a sh- spotted cucumber, but with stripes. And I know they're striped cucumber beetles, but they also look slightly different. That's right. So oh, I'm pretty cool. sure like we use BT for that stuff. Don't quote me, even though I'm in this type of research. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> You haven't like specifically done BT research on it yourself, though. No, 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 no. But it's like one of the main pests in corn. So uh, in corn's BT traded yeah 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 so oh, that, there's actually logically. issues with it becoming uh resistant to it so yeah there is and we don't properly use it to prevent resistances so <laughs> we there we go use it yeah <laughs> sweet that's awesome i love i love it but <laughs> back to pando uh all of those things i was talking about how pando is dying but from fire suppression mule deer and maybe some beetles and diseases uh that's not to say pando's doomed it's been here for thousands of years. So this genetic code, it works, right? Like it's been, it works. It's been working for thousands, maybe even millions of years, according to some sources. And if it was dying, it's going to take a while to die because it's, oh, it's 106 acres of, of Aspen forest. And especially considering that what kills most trees like fire actually rejuvenates an Aspen stand. Like there's, there's studies that show that a fire that goes through an aspen stand actually stimulates sucker growth. So, <laughs> yeah. Those suckers. Yeah, those suckers. And a sucker being like a new sprout coming up from the root system. Mm-hmm. And there are actually some scientists and the U.S. Forest Service and other collaborating entities like Friends of Pando and the National Forest Foundation that are trying to find ways to keep Pando healthy and alive and just keep it around because that's it's such an exceptional organism that like it would be it'd be a shame if we lost it. So, as Spencer said before, like in Rocky Mountain National Park where they have exclusion fences to keep things out like deer and elk to keep them from eating all the plants, they actually have 90 of the 106 acres fenced off to keep herbivory down and so that they can also have control plots to see how much of an effect or what effect that herbivory actually has on Pando, which is really interesting because there's like, it, it totally removes the genetic component of like how, how different trees might respond to the same stimulus, like being eaten. So like they, they have some really cool studies going on and they're also using different experimental disturbances to enhance aspen regeneration, like mechanically removing older stems, which means they're, they're cutting them down and removing them and seeing if it regenerates, if new shoots come up. And they're also using experimental prescribed fire to try to stimulate what I was calling, what I said earlier, that sucker growth and trying to see how that works by, you know, doing prescribed burns and simulating a natural fire. So while this expansive area that Pando occupies it might shrink in the near future because it's not doing so hot, uh, I'm pretty confident that with all these people that are so interested in protecting it, that it's going to persist for many years to come. And yeah, I, th- I just think it's really cool. And I kind of want to go see it next fall when, yeah, all the aspens, yeah, when all the aspens start changing. We got 
We got 106 acres of yellow, basically. <laughs> it's going to look like it's on that? fire. Uh, probably changes year to year, but I'd say like October, beginning of October. All right. I'll see you there. <laughs> see you there. <laughs> see you there. And that's all I got for Pando. Very cool. Huh. Yeah, that's amazing. You wonder, we're all kind of aware that forests and forest communities and the different trees and you know the, the associated fungal complex they all talk to each other, right? So I wonder, like, what is going through Pando's, like, hive mind, in, in a way? What is it thinking about? I mean, at that point, like, you're so, you should be so good at gathering all the resources that you need and sharing it amongst everybody else, right? Like, maybe this part of the acreage is in a drier spot compared to this other spot, and so everybody can get the amount of water that they need. So I wonder how well this entire organism is is doing that and is it better or worse at it than like an entire forest community that you might find somewhere else i don't know that would be really cool actually to see like yeah because there's there's the whole mycorrhizal network thing and you know the what's called the wood wide web or something yeah um Yeah, to, but if to you, see like, but if you're one organism, you don't need that. You just, I mean, you you would still need the the fungi to to get other stuff to bring in salts and nutrients and blah blah blah. Yeah, but you but could you just share it with to yourself. Like communicate. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that'd be a really yeah. cool study. You could probably put some like radio marked carbon or something in one spot, and just like put like a ton of it, obviously, so that you can. Right. You can go back and find it later and detect it and then see test different trees within a expanding radius around it and see like how far does that travel. Yeah, that'd be sweet. Yeah, that'd be oh, a gosh. really cool study to do. I yeah. I wonder if it's already been I'm, done, honestly. I'm I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure somebody has taken a look at that uh at some point. So Yeah, that'd wow. be a really cool <laughs> study. I did actually a while ago I heard about I don't remember who it was or or what, but somebody had, they made a recording of like the sounds of Pando or something. And I don't know, it made like popular science news for a little bit about the sounds that this Aspen tree makes. And I feel like everybody was just like going nuts about it, at least in like the select podcasts that I listened to and they played samples of it. And I remember listening to it and like expecting something shocking or amazing, but it's literally like what you would expect if you just like sit under an aspen tree, close your eyes, <laughs> and listen. <laughs> oh, so just the quaking part of an aspen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was like, this is supposed to be some revolutionary recording. I don't, I don't get it because I was just like, I was, I was listening to it and waiting for something to happen. But it's literally just like a background noise that you would fall asleep to. <laughs> I mean, that maybe that's what it, maybe that's why everybody's going crazy. Like, I can finally sleep. I can, yeah, I can finally <laughs> sleep listening to Pando. <laughs> listening to Pando. <laughs> I I mean, I will say I I do like the sound of trembling aspens. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. a nice sound, but I was I was expecting. I kept thinking I was missing something because. I don't know. People were going nuts about it and I didn't hear anything. <laughs> I was like turning the volume up in my car. Like, what am I missing? And it was, it was nothing. It was just the sounds of, of like wind going through the trees. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And okay. So we have to go 
to Pando and camp out uh, and listen amongst to it. Pando and listen to it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're gonna yeah we'll have to listen for ourselves, make our own recording. Perfect. <laughs> That'll be one of the episodes, just straight Pando music. <laughs> I, don't know, I feel like there's some sort of copyright <laughs> infringement now. <laughs> it's already been everybody done. Everybody will be asleep at ten minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's Perfect. hypnotic. Okay, but yeah, guys, that's Pando. That's Pando, I like the it. biggest so, organism, is, uh, to my knowledge, by you know orders of magnitude, the biggest organism to have ever existed. Yeah, uh, I would say that. Yeah, it's definitely the biggest. There's one that we didn't talk about, and it's that fungal sheet in the Pacific Northwest. The armillaria. That's smaller. Yeah, is that smaller than Pando then? I thought um, it was pretty comparable. I didn't mm-hmm. look into it that much. Um, well, I mean, that that's another episode for a part two of this series, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, okay. I just Googled armillaria. I know it's an armillaria root rot fungus, uh, and I just Googled armillaria biggest organism, and it says the largest organism on Earth is a fungus. So oh, yeah. there's probably some contention about which one's bigger. Nope, you're wrong, right. Zach. Oh, shit. This one is yeah, it occupies a much larger area, that's for sure. Okay, well we don't want to give too much away for part two. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, also, the entire time when we were thinking about, you know, what's the title of this one gonna be, and I'm not saying that this has to be the title, uh, but I know that Sean has volunteered to use this as his first editing episode. I did. Um, so well, yeah, didn't you say that? No, I said okay, I did. I, I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was like, I was just <laughs> talking about this. Uh, so Sean gets the name of it, but I will put my my name in the hat. And the the first music video I ever saw, and this was on MTV, was Backstreet Boys' Larger Than Life. <laughs> now, of course, can we actually use that name? I think so. Larger Than Life is just a saying. Yeah. So I don't. You know, are we, are we still recording right now? This part of yeah, we're still recording. Okay. Yeah, this is we haven't done our signature thing well, yet. Well, Zach. R- real quick too, I-, I wanted to mention that when I was when you were talking about uh, ways that flight has evolved in hu- in life in creatures, um, I-, I wasn't meaning that you were leaving out the uh, the pterosaurs or reptiles. Dinosaurs did evolve flight in two separate paths. And the, oh yes, the yeah, the lesser yeah. known being like the bat-like dinosaurs. That's what I was hinting at earlier. But we can't forget them in case anybody's listening. Like, hey, they they forgot something here. Just uh, yeah, no, yep, yeah. I saw they were listed in in, in my many lists that I had. Oh, okay. but I thought I was just like going pretty generic, I guess. So gotcha. Um, yes, but no, good points. Good point, Sean. Appreciate that. Uh, before we end it, I do want to do a shout out for this episode. We got our first official email. Uh, yes, we did. Fan mail. So Ooh. thank you, Vanessa of New Hampshire, for reaching out. Uh, she reached out about our Lazarus species. And yeah, she was talking about when Zach asked us, what is a deciduous conifer? She's like, I thought about the ginkgo tree. So she would have had us beat there in terms of the quiz, the little mini quiz. But she also talks about how she has brought up coelacanths and horseshoe crabs as she is a science teacher. So thank you for reaching out and sharing your uh, your passions with us, Vanessa. Thanks, um, Vanessa. Yeah, nice you're the best. You. Cool. You're the best. 
I, that's what I said in the email. Oh. Um, so. <laughs> if anybody else wants uh, to send us an email, uh, where do they send it to? A Megatherium Club podcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to hear from you guys. Looking forward to it. Seriously, if you have anything you want to say, we would love it. We're also trying to get a bigger social media presence. Uh, presence, thank you, across different platforms. So look for us on there eventually. But for now, email us. That, I, I think that's the best way to get in contact. Uh, so. Is there any social media handles that they can search for if they want to follow the Megatherium Club podcast? Yeah, there is uh, the Twitter handle, which is Megatherium Pod. Megatherium Club Pod, right? Is that, is that yeah, I think so. And there should be a TikTok, uh, Megatherium Club Podcast, I think is just the, the name of the TikTok. Something like that. I'll, I'll double check. Yeah, please reach out if you have anything to add, anything to, to correct, or if you want future episode uh, suggestions, we'd love to have that. So, all right. Yeah, and tell your friends about us. We're on all all podcast formats or platforms apple Podcasts, spotify whatever you're listening to right now tell your friends about us we'd love to get more yeah. people oh. involved at the megatherium club and we want to hear from more people too well as always we love you guys and i love you guys and we'll end it how 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 how, how? how?